Now, politics was also discussed on Crosstalk today. Another big surprise, right? Uh, and that leads us to our first guest, Kevin Bosch. He's a managing partner, co-founder of the strategy firm Sandstone Group. Kevin, welcome to the program. Hello, how are you doing? Good to be here. Uh, ter- terrific, thanks, and thanks for asking. Uh, we have on, on the program, in, in some detail, kind of looked back at the year uh, as it pertains to the Conservatives and Pierre Polyev. So we thought maybe with you tonight we might focus a little bit more on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and what the last 12 months have been like uh, for him mm-hmm. and for his party. And uh, I suspect if we if we just kind of surveyed Canadians, there would be even I don't know, probably a sizable number of people that, that, that would consider themselves supporters of the Prime Minister, supporters of the Liberal Party, that might say it's been uh, quite a challenging year. How do you view it? I, I'd absolutely say it's been a challenging year. I think um, the economy has been tough for, for a lot of Canadians. There's definitely been a, an inflation crisis, I'd say. Um, housing has been very difficult. Food uh, prices have been up. And um, so that's, you know, when the, when the country's hurting, I think the government's hurting. So I, I'd say it's absolutely been a difficult year for the, uh, for the government. And when we look back at this year, and it's not to say that we have never been polarized and we have never... Uh, in this country, butted mm-hmm. heads when it comes to politics, but but we seem more polarized than ever. You know, I referenced this this program crosstalk that that aired on this yep. station and across the network earlier today. Shay Ganim made a point. Uh, Shay's based out of of Alberta, and he was kind of, I think, trying to sum things up. And he did qualify it and say that this doesn't necessarily represent the majority of Canadians, mm-hmm. but certainly it seems a a sizable chunk of Canadians that have come to this point where. Um, if you hate what I hate, then you have my support. If you hate the same yeah. people I hate, if you hate the same party that I hate, then no need to talk, uh, uh, you know, get deep into a policy platform. Uh, I will vote for you. And, and that seems a, just a real sad commentary on where we are. Now, would you agree with that or do you see it differently? Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's a reality. I, I, I credit it to the fact that I think a lot of us, you know, we get our news from, say, social media. We get it from sort of the echo chambers that we, we live in, the, the people we follow and that follow us. Um, it's not like the old days where we all sit around and watch the, the, the same newscast on TV. I mean, who does that anymore? So I, I think, yeah, I, I think there's definitely some polarization. We see it in the U.S. I, I think it's creeping into Canada. Um, I, I, I just think fundamentally, you know, I, I, I think Canadians are good and, and, and charitable people. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem to be, seems to be less tolerance for, um, you know, talking politics the way we used to. And, um, and I, I hope that's a trend that doesn't continue. And would that sort of an environment work for or against an incumbent for, in, in this case, the prime minister? Um, well, it's, it's probably not good for the liberals. I mean, the liberals are a party of the center. And, and so if our politics polarize into left and right, um, it, it, it's not a good thing. I mean, Take the recent, um, you know, the uh, the crisis in in Gaza. Um, liberal parties, lots of Jewish supporters, lots of lots of Muslim supporters. Um, it, it, it's been it's been a challenging issue for for the government because they they don't want to just you know take one side or the other. They they, they care about protecting the lives of everyone in the in the region. So yeah, I think I think it's been, been polarization is, is is tough for for a centrist party like the Liberals. And it also seems more difficult for an incumbent party, and this has been, you know, probably mm-hmm. the case, yeah. uh, if not throughout history, certainly in, in recent history, where if you're if you're in opposition, it's easy to criticize. Maybe right. a little bit uh, more difficult to give a nuanced response when somebody's asking, "What have you done for us over the last two years, or three years, or the, or the, your last term in office?" Well, you, you get blamed for everything that's going wrong. I mean, uh, housing supply is not there; it's your fault. Uh, food prices are high; it's your fault. Uh, the um, uh, supply chains are are making things difficult around the world. You know, they blame, they blame the government because they're in office. So that's 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 happening. That that's dragging Biden down the U.S. It's dragging down politicians in Europe, and it's certainly hurting the Liberals here in Canada. And is it is it the messaging or is it the policy itself? Like, it, like has has the Trudeau government or Trudeau himself brought this yeah. on themselves? No, I, I I don't think there are any. I, I can't think of any fundamental policies that that, that Canadians um, dislike. Uh, you know, by and large, I, I, I look at this government. I don't, I don't think so. I like the policy equation. I think you know, on some on a lot of the key issues, whether it's climate change or you know, support for um, childcare and whatnot. I think I think they they have the um, uh, the focus right. Um, you know, could could should they have anticipated more the the, the the housing challenges and done more, got better results earlier? I mean, 
you, you can look at things like that. But I, I think I think fundamentally, they've, um, I don't think it's a policy thing. I think I think it's I think it's a reality thing. I think I think there's uh, a drag on the world economy right now, and Canadians are feeling it too. And if you look back at history, every time there's been a an economic challenge, it, it hits the incumbent government. It hits them hard. But but on the policy front, for example, there would be a sizable number of Canadians that would fault government policy that would, you know, mm-hmm. if we're if we're speaking yeah. to uh, listeners in Alberta or Saskatchewan or even some other provinces, they would say that's just unrealistic. And we we literally disagree with that policy. Yep. That, 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 that you're always you're always you're always going to have that. You're never going to please 100 percent of the people. Right. So. Um, you know, you, you, you focus on results and you try to try to do the best. Uh, the liberals pride themselves on being evidence-based uh, government. They like to say, okay, wh- what's the proof? What's the experience in other, in other areas? They're not, they're not a highly ideological party. Um, I, I think that's a smart approach, but um, others, others take a different approach. Others, others say, well, I'm fundamentally conservative or fundamentally socialist or whatever. And, and that's just never, never been the liberal way, but well, you're right. There, there are people that, We'll never uh, like this government, um, like no matter who's leading it. <laughs> but but you would under, you would you would acknowledge that there would be a lot of people listening to this that would say that they are an ideological party or they have become more of an ideological party and less centrist. And whether that is is true in in some of the policies, mm-hmm. that certainly is is the narrative and the image that that is resonating with a lot of Canadians right now. I, I'd certainly agree. Um, certainly, this version of the Liberal Party is, is one of the more left-wing um, versions of the Liberal Party that we've seen. Um, you know, and, and probably that that is that is reinforced by the fact that there's a governing agreement with the NDP right now that sort of drags it further to the left. And so, um, you know, the great success of the Liberal Party has always been finding finding that middle, finding where where Canadians are. And, uh, you know, leading the parade, but not getting so far out there that that the Canadians don't want to follow anymore. Uh, but yeah, I, I I certainly agree that this is a left 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 tilting version of the Liberal Party for sure. Our guest is Kevin Bosch. Kevin is a managing partner, co-founder of the strategy firm Sandstone Group. We're talking year in review for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party of Canada. And uh, Kevin, obviously, you know, polls are you know, snapshots mm-hmm. in time, but we've seen. Uh, you know, snapshot trend. after snapshot mm-hmm. after snapshot uh, that lend themselves to, as you say, uh, trends. How can, and, and, and in some cases you look at these, and I think there was one recent one where it looked like maybe at least uh, the Liberals had stopped losing ground. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, the gulf seems quite large. And when you look not only at pervert, uh, preferred uh, uh, voting trends among voters, but then what that might translate into seat counts, mm-hmm. uh, it does not paint a pretty picture for the prime minister right now. No, no, I think you're right. I, I think there, there's definitely been, I, I'd say, since the summer, uh, the Conservatives have been leading the polls. Um, I, I'm not one who gets too excited about polls this far out from from voting day. Um, you know, I've, I've I worked on six elections in national headquarters for Liberals. Um, I've seen them move quite a bit within an election itself. Um, you know, what, I think one of the things that's dragging down the Liberals is is, is the economy, and, and I, mean, I guess we see this around the world. Um, you know, when 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 things are not going well, it it doesn't go well for the incumbent government. If people if people are feeling pain in their own households and their own household budgets, and they are, um, you know, it, they tend to tend to blame the people who are in office. Um, that that is one of the biggest driving factors of elections is how it affects your your family um, more than any other things like foreign policy or whatnot. And so I'm I'm not too surprised the Liberals are are behind. It seems to be, you know, it, it was quite a golf for a while, and some recent polls say it may be maybe shrinking. But yeah, no, it's um, it, it's definitely been a challenge for them for sure. So in terms of timelines, then at what point do parties start to get concerned and say, okay, you know, we're two years out, eighteen months out, twelve months out? At yeah. what point do they start saying, okay, we've got to need to get our stuff together? And then once you decide that we need to act, how do you? Because you can, I don't think you can get it back all at once. How do you put together a strategy to to try and bridge that gulf? Yeah, par- parties tend to, uh, you know, they they don't often look at national polls all that much. They 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 sort of know which ridings they compete in and which ones they they're too far off to consider winning. Um, and they, they put in place a strategy to try to win that those seats. So maybe there's like a hundred 
ridings in Canada that are, that are sort of in play in the election, and then that's where the, a lot of the, the focus is. So I think they're already sort of developing their their strategies. They're putting together platforms now, um, and they're sort of like, well, you know, how how can we move the dial in these, you know, um, these these targeted seats, and you know, the the, the seats that the Liberals will be targeting um, will be different than, you know, the New Democrats will have some here and the Greens will have some here and the Conservatives will have some there. And uh, uh, some of them will be key battlegrounds and um, they, they often tend to be the same writings, you know, over and over again. Uh, yeah. And, and there have been some, as we talk about the prime minister personally, there have been some mm-hmm. uh, whispers recently and a, a call back to the, yeah walk in the snow, uh, hearkening back to the days of his father as prime minister, sure. suggesting that maybe it's time that uh, the prime minister exit politics and have mm-hmm. somebody else take over the reins of the liberals. He has not given an indication that that's going to happen. What's your sense? No, I, I, I personally don't think he's, he's actually made his mind up yet. I, I, I think, um, I, I, I think he's, he'll, um, you know, I, I, I think like most liberals, I, I trust him to, to make the right choice. He'll, he'll decide whether he's a lift on the party or if he's an anchor. And uh, I, I, know, I, I know this prime minister fairly well, and I, I know he cares greatly about the, the party and the, and the philosophy and, um, and, and, and the good government he believes the Liberal Party provides. And so I, I think, you know, I think he has, you know, much he wants to accomplish still as, as prime minister. And I think, I think he'll decide, you know, probably about a year before, before the election, whether, you know, the election has to take place in, um, in 2025. And he'll say, well, am, am I the, am I the one that provides lift to this party or, or would someone else have a, have a better chance of doing it? Um, so I, yeah, and, and he really can't say anything um, other than I'm running again and, and, and until he decides he's not right. So I'm, I'm not surprised by that at all. From from a strategy uh, standpoint, and certainly from uh, an individual's standpoint, uh, there's certainly a lot to be said for any politician that says, you know, I still think I have a lot to offer, and I think mm-hmm. I'd like to, I've got some policies that either I would like to see through that have already sort of been implemented but not fully realized, or other ideas that we haven't gotten to yet. But then there is, mm-hmm. there's just the cold, hard politics of it. And one of the things yeah. I keep coming back to is for, for someone like Justin Trudeau, if, say, the, and, and, and now we're, we're speculating and, and some hypotheses yeah. here because sure. we're not that close to a federal election. But, but if we were, and, and this, this gap was still there where it just seemed that, uh, this might not be the year to win another election for the Liberals with this person as leader. I mean, he's, why stay on? I mean, he's widely seen mm-hmm. within the party as having rescued it. Uh, he's led them to three general election victories, a couple of minorities, albeit, but still three election victories. Why not hand the reins to someone else uh, who may prove to be more popular yeah. or, or at least maybe less polarizing? No, I, I, I think that's right. I, I think there's a reality that, you know, we see in politics that, that eventually people get tired of your face. Eventually there, there, there's, there's fatigue with, with any leader. And, um, you know, I, I, I think um, maybe after that about eight year, nine year mark, you know, you, you sort of see that um, in Canadian politics. I, I wonder if it's because in, in American politics, they change their president at least every eight years and you always get a new face. So that, that's something. That's a consideration. I I, I think he'll, he'll take in mind. I, I think he'll act. I, I really think he'll say, "Okay, am I the one? Am I the best person to uh, to lead us forward? Um, or or is, could someone else maybe maybe do this better than me?" I, I think they would give that leader, you know, an, enough time before the election because they want to put their stamp on things. Um, you know, as for the polls, if, if you're electing a leader for a party in opposition, you can develop somewhat of uh, some some excitement sometimes if you're electing a prime minister that that's a that's a bigger deal that that that's something that, that canadians would, would pay attention to people are afraid crime and what needs to be done where do we begin to tackle this issue just before the break we heard a segment from crosstalk which aired on this and other stations earlier today with shay ganim in alberta kelly cotrera in ontario mike smith in british columbia and we're joined now by bruce pitt payne who's a retired RCMP major crimes investigator and consultant. Uh, Bruce, welcome to the program. Hi, Sid. Uh, so as you listen to some of these concerns expressed on the show today about crime, and uh, I think we're kind of focusing on some of the major centers across the country, and it wasn't just violent mm-hmm. crime, but property crime, uh, which that has people concerned as well. What do you think of when, when you hear these kinds of discussions? 
Well, the first thing is that was a very eloquently put discussion. Um, it did start off with it, it sounded like everybody was trying to outdo each other. Um, but at the end of it, they all had very, very wise words and they got to the root problem, which is here we have an extremely complex problem, our public safety problem in Canada, and it will not be served with simple fly-by-night solutions. Um, we as a society, um, I'm sure many of us feel like we're watching that proverbial river where the bodies are floating down and we're constantly pulling people out of the water to save them without going upstream to see why they're falling in in the first place. Um, and I think your guests uh, hit it right on the head here is probably the majority of the impactful situations where crime affects the average Canadian is property crime, which comes uh, from health care and mental health issues, drug addiction and such. And all of those points that were made earlier, the lack of treatment facilities, and I mean immediate uh, care when somebody needs to get clean, they need it right now, not a year from now. Um, we need restorative justice. You need all of the pillars put together for that aspect, the healthcare part, because law enforcement, it's very clear now, will never solve this problem alone. You're not going to arrest people or arrest our way out of this. Um, the other really intelligent thing that I got from listening to, to that group was they hit it right on the head. Um, I'm going to go a little further, though. It's not just organized crime that Canada has to start looking at. I want to call it transnational organized crime. So fentanyl and such are not necessarily being made and sold just in Canada. It starts elsewhere. And the claws are into Canada now by the transnational organized criminals. And so here's what we're seeing now. We're seeing the all of the misery from our health care issues and mental health issues and addiction being fueled by these transnational groups which then are operating through many of the organized crime groups in Canada. And we're seeing local organized crime, and we're seeing a lot of retail organized crime, which is slipping under the radar, um, apart from some people that are being very vocal, uh, thank gosh, about it. So you're seeing all of this happen. What does it mean? That we've got to start looking at the way to deal with this and to recognize how to deal with it in a multi-pronged yet integrated approach. And it's not all going to be on the, the uh, shoulders of law enforcement anymore. And certainly, and certainly there is a, a policing component to the international drug trade, but you're correct. Oh. And I know that, 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 that our host talked about this and really, you know, zeroed in on this at the end in terms of mental health addictions and those sorts of things. But, but that leads to, uh, to this question, which is where do we start if we can agree uh, as Canadians, that the root of a lot of these problems starts with addictions, the drug trade, and mental health. And yet, if you yes. look at different jurisdictions across the country, whether it be municipal or uh, or provincial uh, and other jurisdictions, they all have different philosophies of how to tackle that problem. There doesn't seem to be an agreement, a consensus on the best way to start addressing that root problem, that root cause. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and this is just a lot of it is my gut feeling as just your average observer that watches comments made by politicians and such. Um, you've got some systems that are driven by science and some systems that are driven by, for political gain. And I don't want to get into that. I know that isn't the point of who's doing right and who's doing wrong. But we have to make up our mind whether we're going to follow the science or or the political vote-catching sensational aspect of this. The science, um, I, I tend to go that way usually. Um, you'd be surprised as an ex-police officer, it's not all about just getting more boots on the ground. The 50 in Calgary that they get, I'm sure that what they're thinking is, thank gosh, because we're 100 short. Um, so it, it, it does help. So where does, where does we, the science lead us? The science leads back to the mental health and addictions, um, that if that can be dealt with as one pillar, you will probably find that the need for bail reform, and I'm not saying bail reform isn't a pillar that has to be looked at, 
but it, it decreases the immediacy, the danger of a lack of bail reform. Same with the not criminally responsible. Some of the things that Mike Smith talked about, the chronic repeat offenders, much of that is because of the addiction. It's to feed the addiction. But where does it come from? And so uh, to answer your question uh, quickly on that, the healthcare role is probably the priority. The second part is restructuring and revisiting how organized crime is dealt with in this country. And whereas those 50 police officers being put on the ground will definitely be an asset to a city. Um, the RCMP, for instance, might have to be reevaluating how the federal aspect of that is handled with much more emphasis on it. If you can stop the healthcare issues and the addiction issues, and you can then stop it from being propagated by these corrupt people in these organized crime groups, transnationally particular, then you're, then you're ahead of the game. And many of the other issues may solve themselves to some extent. And you've worked at this, obviously, for years. You take a keen interest mm-hmm. in it. Where would you peg right now? And this is not a new problem, but it does seem that it, it's coming or has come to a head in recent mm-hmm. times. Where would you peg your level of optimism that we were, are on the verge of making some real significant headway? Uh, we are on the verge of either making a good decision or not making the headway. And this is the, the thing is, I think we are at the stage where the information is being given to us. But we may as a society not have the wisdom to listen to the people that actually know what they're talking about, which are saying to at least start dealing with this as more of a medical health care system. Um, it will be up to the politicians. It will be up to us as voting individuals to make it known that we want this fixed. It's going to unfortunately also cost money. I think that's the inevitable. And I think that we have to, in order to have a well-run system, we're going to have to part with some of that money in order to properly fund these, uh, I guess, uh, better operating systems than what we have now. Well put. And uh, Bruce, we certainly uh, do appreciate you taking some time to come on and uh, share your views on this, because uh, as we heard uh, today, this is, this is an issue that's affecting people right across the country. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Bye now. Now, I don't know if it would be hard to believe, because obviously this song, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee, has been around seemingly forever. Now, if you were to guess, what would you guess? 40 years, 50 years, 60 years? The correct answer is 65 years. That song was released in 1958, and it is finally, you know the old saying, after 20 years, someone's an overnight success? After 65 years, that song has finally climbed to the top of Billboard's Hot 100 list. Now, Billboard has changed the way that it charts songs to include streaming. We would not expect that that song, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, 65 years later, would be selling a lot of records or getting a lot of airplay. It would get some airplay around this time of year, but not a lot. But obviously must have a ton of downloads to rocket to the top of Billboard's Hot 100. So our topic is Christmas music. And we've got the perfect guest. Annie Zaleski is a music writer. She's also the author of This Is Christmas, Song by Song, the stories behind 100 holiday hits. Annie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, that song in particular, I mean, Brenda Lee was was a virtual child when that was released, was she not? Yes, she was 13 years old, believe it or not. 13 years old, and I did read an interview in the last, I want to say maybe in the last couple of weeks, I'm not sure exactly when it came out, with her saying that it's still, to her, this song resonates as much now as it did the, the, the day she released it. And, you know, and, and you hear it. You know, when you hear that song, I mean, I've heard that song hundreds of times, and every time I hear it, it, it sounds fresh. It, you know, I'm happy to hear it, and it makes me happy. So your book, uh, the songs and uh, song by song and the stories behind 100 holiday hits. Now, is this is this what you would consider 
the top songs or the most interesting songs, or how did you go about compiling your list of these 100 holiday hits? That's a great question. Um, a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, you know, when I went through and tried to narrow down, you know, which 100 songs I wanted to focus on, there were the standards that I'm like, I have to have Bing Crosby. I have to make sure that I have Gene Autry. So there were the ones that I knew I had to have. But I wanted to have some songs that are maybe a little bit lesser known, songs that I really love or songs that people might not have heard of. And I wanted to have a good mix of genres and eras. And so it was a really interesting puzzle trying to put together 100 songs that, you know, it all, all kind of made sense and all kind of, um, you know, had a good kind of you know, diverse you know, we're diverse and showed off kind of uh, the breadth and the range of Christmas music. Well, you mentioned the classic, so we're going to play just a little bit here of Bing Crosby. And that song, White Christmas by Bing Crosby, may resonate even more this year than in past years, at least in this country, because I think there are a lot of people across Canada that are still crossing their fingers and hoping for a little bit of snow before we get to Christmas. It has been unusually mild in most areas uh, of the country so far uh, this season. But is that, if do you think, Annie, if we pulled uh, a bunch of people that that would be at or near the top of, of most people's list of Christmas favorites? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's one of the best-selling Christmas songs of all time. There's just something so timeless about that song. You know, there's just something so sentimental you know you can remember when you were a child hearing that song and even now you know there's something so universal about wishing for a white christmas because it is magical you know when you have christmas holiday you want to have a little bit of snow it's the one day of the year that you're like okay i'm good i I can have that little bit of sprinkling you know because you're at home and you're kind of cozy but absolutely it's just and his voice oh his voice is just so beautiful on that song just such a wonderful performance it is. And, you know, one other song that I always, and I don't know if I would consider uh, The Little Drummer Boy one of my favorites, but I think one of my favorite versions of any Christmas song in recent years has been, I just keep going back to Bing Crosby and David Bowie, Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy. And, and if anybody hasn't listened to it, I think most people have probably heard it, even if they didn't realize maybe uh, the second voice in it at the time, maybe they first heard it. But there's a wonderful video that goes with that. You can view it on YouTube. And that's one version, I think, of a Christmas song that I could just have on repeat over and over at this time of year. I, I, I still think that's just a remarkable duet. I agree. And, you know, and and I'm the same way. Little Drummer Boy, it's a wonderful song. But when they got together and they made that extra song that they kind of weaved into it and the fact that it was like two icons of different generations coming together, too, because I think people were like, you know, what on earth is David Bowie doing singing with Bing Crosby? (laughs) But, you know, Bowie got to show off his crooner side that he always kind of had his kind of more old fashioned side. And, oh, I, I just love it, too. And I think, you know, they he plays it straight. You know, there's no irony. He's not, you know, kind of smirking about it. He's very sincere about it as well. And I think that also really makes that song stand out. Right, because in that video, there is a little bit of interplay up to it. And, and, and maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. But since we're talking about it, I'm just going to play a little bit of that of that collaboration. Can it be years from now? When we come The challenge I have with a song like that is knowing when to cut it off. I feel, I just feel bad cutting it off too soon because I I just think it's such a fantastic piece of music. 
And that crescendo, oh, it's so beautiful when they're coming together. Like, it's it's all coming together, absolutely. So you mentioned off the top that, th- that there were songs, obviously, that are very popular, very well-recognized and, and world-renowned, but you also wanted to dive into maybe some some lesser-known songs or maybe lesser-known performers. So are, are there one or two that stood out for you that you really wanted to highlight? You know, one of them I wanted to have in there um, was uh, Jesus Christ by Big Star, which is, I think, you know, nominally a Christmas song, but I think it's always associated with the holiday. And, you know, Big Star was kind of a, a power pop band that didn't have a lot of success during their time when they were together, but over the years have been cited as an influence by REM and all sorts of bands. And it's just a really interesting song. And so that was one of them. Um, also, the new wave band XTC in the early 80s, mm-hmm. They made up a basically a fake alter ego name called the Three Wise Men, and they put out a couple Christmas songs. And so the, the, the one of the songs that I highlighted is Thanks for Christmas. And it's great. It's this like really jangly kind of upbeat, uh, you know, very shiny kind of new wave song. And, you know, when you, when you hear it, you're like, that's definitely XTC. But, um, it, but it's great. It's not streaming either. And so it's a little bit hard to find, but um, it's always been a favorite of mine. So I was happy to put that in there, too. I had mentioned earlier on the show before before we brought you on, uh, there's a good friend of mine, and, and I think these conversations, these sometimes they devolve into arguments go on at this time of year all the time as it comes to Christmas movies. One that springs to mind is Die Hard. Some people are adamant that it is absolutely a Christmas movie. Others say it's not. Uh, um, I'm curious about Christmas music. Uh, do Is every song that we look at and view as a Christmas song or a Christmas carol was it was it intended that way when it was first written, first performed? Are there are there any examples of uh, maybe somebody that just kind of annoyingly almost backed into a Christmas hit when they just thought they were releasing a song? Well, I have the perfect one for that, and that is Joni Mitchell's River. You know, which it was uh, on a blue, you know, her, her seminal record, and you know, it, it it kind of mentions Christmas, but it's also kind of mentioning winter. It sounds a little Christmassy with the instrumentation, but I. Don't, she didn't mean it as a Christmas song, but it's kind of become associated with the, the season. You know, it's a little bit melancholy, a little bit introspective, you know, and a lot of times during the holiday season, that's where we kind of find ourselves at. And so I think that's probably um, the biggest one, especially. And my goodness, it's been covered like all, over a thousand times, I think, by different artists. It's just, it's one of those songs that's just really become associated with the holiday. Uh, do you have what uh, like a, a top five of your personal favorites, whether they made the book or not? Like, are there go tos that you have at this time of year, Annie? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I know my number one is the Waitress's Christmas Wrapping. Um, that is by far my favorite. It's kind of new wavy. It's it's very kind of upbeat. It's kind of sassy. So that's my number. You one. have an eclectic taste in Christmas music. <laughs> I, I really do. It, that's I was. That's why I loved writing this book. Is I got to show off everything I like about Christmas music. Um, that one I do love. Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. I guess a very polarizing mm-hmm. um, one. I'm actually wearing a Paul McCartney uh, Wonderful Christmas Time sweatshirt today. I love it so much. Uh, I, I do don't know Elton why. John. I don't know why, but when I hear that song, I'm expecting a commercial to come on television, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it was part of a commercial at some time, or if I just think of it as the commercialization of Christmas music. I don't know why, but I'm always anticipating a commercial. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, I, it's it's the synthesizer. I can totally hear it. Like it feels like it's going to sell something to you. I get it. I totally get it. I hear that. Uh, but that's what, you know, I like uh, Slade's Merry Christmas, Everybody, too, because I love uh, glam rock. And um, Elton John's Step Into Christmas, of course. And then um, Darlene Loves Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. But that's just today. Like, I, I have such an affection for Christmas music that it sort of changes by the day and by the year, too. All right. So you're, 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 you're very open, as it would appear, in terms of your taste in Christmas music and, and, and what you're willing to celebrate uh, during the holiday season. So one of my questions was going to be, do you have a preference or do you, are you one of those that would sit back and say, well, I don't write them like that anymore, or are open to more contemporary Christmas songs like this one? And see, I have a theory that's Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas, and, and I've heard people say that they're sick of it because it's overplayed, but I think those people are not being truthful. I don't think anybody cannot have a smile on their face when they listen to that song. 
I am with you 100%. I am definitely team Mariah all the way. And I love that song. I think it's, it's, it's just, it's a perfectly constructed song. You know, it has sleigh bells. It has an upbeat chorus. It's a little bit of romance. And she sounds so happy during it. So yeah, I am all in on that. Is there any similarity uh, that you've looked at? And, and maybe there's not, because when you, when you listed your top five, and then we talk about Bing Crosby and, uh, and, and Brenda Lee, uh, that covers a wide spectrum of musical styles and tastes. But if someone was sitting down to write what they hoped would be a Christmas hit today, is there any formula or any advice that you would give them that to say, okay, if you do this and this, it might hit? You know, I think uh, first and foremost, you know, you can be clever, but uh, it's generally a lot of the lyrics are simple. Like when you actually sit down and read the lyrics of Christmas music and, uh, you know, big Christmas songs, it's, there's a lot of repetition. It's, it's a little bit, you know, sly here and there, but it's pretty straightforward. You know, you, you don't, you don't get too fancy. So that's one of them. Um, you know, I think it's, they're short. You know, that's another thing is that mm. when you, you don't really find a lot of overly long Christmas songs. So generally, you know, three, four minutes, get in and get out. And so I think that's another one. Sleigh bells. I mean, I think in abundance. You know, Fairy I, you know, tale not, of New York is long. Oh, how, what is that? Four and a half minutes? Is that a little bit? That, yeah, so longer, long-ish. Okay, okay, fair. See, there's always a <laughs> and it drags in places, so maybe it seems longer. <laughs> well, it also has a really nice coda. I mean, I think that's another thing is that a lot of Christmas songs use instrumental passages in really good ways. When you think about it, you know, either as an intro or an outro, or maybe there's a bridge. And so having a moment where people can reflect. So I think that's something else. And then sleigh bells. You know, I think not every song has sleigh bells, but that's, I I would say that probably more songs than not in my book have sleigh bells. You know, you just think of like going out and being on a sled and that's, that's very Christmassy. Do you only listen to Christmas music at Christmas time? You know, funnily enough, I have not listened to that much Christmas music this year than you might think. Um, But I do, like, during this time of year, you know, I tend to listen to that more than others. You know, you're just in the mood for it. You know, it's cold. We haven't had a lot of snow here either, so it's not quite Christmassy yet. But the temperatures are cold enough that I'm like, you know, let me put on some Christmas music and just throw it out and listen to it. Annie, thank you for your time. We do appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, but first, we mentioned uh, going into the uh, break at the bottom of the hour that we wanted to talk about a, a famous icon. It's a century of standing tall in Tinseltown. The famous Hollywood sign that welcomes all to Southern California is celebrating, if you can believe it, its 100th birthday. And you may not know, I sure didn't, that back in 1923, LA Times publisher Harry Chandler invested $21,000 to make that sign. And the reason he did it is very interesting. Uh, Not with the intent to promote the city, the area, or tourism, but he did it to advertise his own real estate development. It was supposed to only be up for 18 months, but it soon, as we know, took on a life of its own. One, two, three. (laughs) So there we go. So the Hollywood sign was first lit on December the 8th, 1923. And that's why we're symbolically lighting the sign again after 100 years. How cool would it be if we replicated those uh, light fixtures to a working light fixture so that we can demonstrate to the public for the very first time since 1933 of how the Hollywood sign was lit up close, up close and personal shots of those light fixtures from 1923. The Hollywood sign really is Hollywood's biggest star. And she is definitely ready for her close-up. You know, after the last several years, this is really a coming out moment for L.A. because the Hollywood sign really is our global icon. It is the reason people choose to come to L.A., not just because of getting that bucket list photo with a Hollywood sign in the background, but also because it represents the fact that L.A. is a city of endless possibility. The local business community received over $34 billion in sales last year from visitors to L.A., So the Hollywood sign Centennial is really a great platform for us to roll out the red carpet and invite people to experience all of the incredibly new and exciting things happening in L.A. People come to L.A. to both reinvent and rediscover themselves. And I think that's what always keeps the community moving forward. 
So I think if you look at the Hollywood sign, something that was originally intended to be a temporary sign for a residential community has grown to become one of the world's most beloved global icons. 100 Years of the Hollywood Sign. Our guest is Jeff Zarenum. He's one of the voices that you heard in that piece. Jeff is the chairman of the Hollywood Sign Trust. Welcome to the program, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Sid, and thanks for having me. Uh, so, 19. Yeah, straight from Hollywood. Uh, do you have the sign in the background? <laughs> I, well, it's, it's, it's dark right now, but uh, I'm, in, I'm in my home office but it looks right over to the Hollywood sign. But uh, yeah, I mean, I live in Hollywood. I was born here I, in Hollywood, so I've been looking at the Hollywood sign my entire life. I do find the backstory fascinating, and I hadn't heard it until you were celebrating uh, 100 years, but 1923, and uh, a newspaper publisher wanted to put up a sign to, what, advertise a real estate development, and it was going to stay up for a year, a year and a half, and that would be the end of it. And somehow we made it to 100 years. How did all this happen? Can you can you believe that? Yeah. It, well, they uh, Harry Chandler and some of the th- two other partners they create they were developing land and uh, the development was called Hollywood Land. <clears throat> so in order to sell their land in uh, in Hollywood in the Hollywood Hills, they decided to have this gimmick. And uh, there was a guy named John Roche who came up with the idea on a napkin and he drew this billboard uh, on one of the hills in their development. And uh, that's how the Hollywood land sign came to be. So the Hollywood sign that you see today, uh, the the land part of it was actually uh, removed in 1949. So from 1949 to the present, it has been, it has said Hollywood. Uh, But originally it said Hollywood land and it was lit up with about 3,700 uh, inc- uh, actually 11 watt incandescent light bulbs that would flash Holly and then wood and then land and then altogether Hollywood land and then it would repeat. Uh, and that lasted for about 10 years from 1923 to 1933 when it then went dark. So uh, there you have it. And the first day that it was lit, was on December the 8th, 1923. So that's the day that we use hmm. to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the of the Hollywood sign. Did these developers all get rich off that land development? <laughs> uh, actually, no. The development, you know, it, it, the, the parcels of land didn't really sell as, as they intended. It actually took them until 1944 to, to call it quits. They, the development actually went bankrupt at the end, at the end of the day, uh, and they didn't really sell all the parcels of land. The, the, parcel, the, the land that you see where the Hollywood sign now sits was supposed to be all uh, parcels of land too, but they found it too difficult to sell those lands because it's on such a steep hillside. Uh, so they donated that, the, that remaining large parcel of land to the city of Los Angeles in lieu of the property taxes that were owed on it. So in December of 1944, uh, they they gave that parcel of land, which included a dilapidated Hollywood land sign to the city of Los Angeles, which then subsequently annexed it into the, into Griffith park, which is, which was right next door. So, um, the sign in, in 1949 actually said Hollywood land, starting with an O, because the, the wind and, uh, you know, as you, as you were saying earlier at the beginning of your monologue, uh, it was only supposed to last 18 months, but it had lasted all the way to 1949, and the H had actually fallen down back in 1945 because nobody and the land deal, the land deal went. The land deal went bust just like so many Hollywood dreams to come. Uh, what was the, was there, was there a moment that where, like, what made someone say, wait a minute, let's, you know, land deal be damned. We need to preserve this sign uh, for this area as right. a, a landmark of, of some sort. Did they start using it uh, for tourism? Were there... Were there other uses for it at the time that made people stop and think, or, or did they just well, not bother taking it down? 
No, great, great, great question. No, the, the, the Hollywood land sign started to gain a lot of uh, publicity and people started, you know, uh, falling in love with it. And it started, you know, this, this whole area was called Hollywood. So the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce actually stepped in and said, look, uh, we'll help preserve the sign provided that we can remove the land uh, so that it would only say Hollywood. And the reason why they did that is because um, they wanted to have recognition recognition for the place called Hollywood, uh, as well as the motion picture industry and the up-and-coming television industry where it was gaining popularity. So they wanted to they wanted a symbol so that when people are talking about Hollywood, they would be able to envision uh, this icon, which, which eventually became an icon called just the Hollywood sign. So anytime today that people are referencing Hollywood, the industry, uh, everybody focuses on or, or puts up a picture of the Hollywood sign representing that industry. And that's Absolutely. kind of what propelled the Hollywood sign to become a celebrity in its own right. Our guest is Jeff Zarenham. He's the chairman of the Hollywood Sign Trust. The Hollywood Sign, the one, the the, the iconic Hollywood Sign that we all recognize from 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 film and, and and tourism. And if you've ever been there, it's probably the first place you wanted to go and get a picture of. Uh, it's celebrating 100 years. It started in 1923 as a sign for a real estate development, and then just kind of took on a life of its own. Jeff, how many people does it? attract in a year and what are the parameters like how close can you get to this sign or can you get close to it um well to answer your first question how many you know uh, the, the number that we use uh, uh that visitors coming to los angeles is, a, is about 50 million people come and visit los angeles every year how many people come up and and, and see the sign the sign is really meant to be seen from a distance so mm-hmm. you know uh, practically every all the people that uh, come into Los Angeles will see the Hollywood sign because when you're when you're flying into uh, Los Angeles International Airport LAX and if you're sitting on the starboard side of the airplane you're going to see the Hollywood sign from your window so there, that's the first place you're going to see the Hollywood sign is when you're flying in uh, but uh, to to answer your second question how you know how close can you get you can't really get you can't really touch the Hollywood sign because it's in a restricted area. I mean, I have the key uh, because we maintain the sign. So I, I, I touch the sign all the time, but you can get as close to about 150 to 200 feet from the sign. If you That's hike to close. the top of Mount Lee. So uh, if you, if you hike up there, uh, the, the Hollywood sign is located on Mount Lee in Griffith park. Um, and, uh, and the, the, the top of Mount Lee is about seven, 1,700 feet high, uh, but the, and the Hollywood sign will be just below you. So you can, you can see a panoramic view of the entire Los Angeles Basin, not only the, in front of the Hollywood sign, but also the valley side of Los Angeles. So you have a wonderful view from up there, and I highly recommend that, you, that people take a hike and, uh, into Griffith Park and to the top of Mount Lee. And is there a record? There must be of the first, the first film or the first television uh, episode that featured the sign? You know, that's a, that's a very good question. I've never been asked that one before. So kudos to you. Um, I don't know of the first film of the Hollywood sign. I, I do. I think the, uh, I love Lucy is probably one of the earliest TV shows, uh, that was actually filmed here in Hollywood, uh, back in the fifties. And I'm, and I, I remember seeing an episode of uh, the Hollywood sign in an I Love Lucy episode. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, uh, that's probably one of the earliest ones that I can think of. But, uh, but, the, but, the, but the sign has been in, in so many movies. I mean, the one that I like to quote is always uh, uh, Friends with Benefits uh, with uh, Justin Timberlake and uh, Myla Kunis, uh, where Justin Timberlake uh, is sitting in the O of the Hollywood sign, and then he gets scared, and then they... they they, they whisk him away uh, for trespassing uh, uh, in a helicopter. So it's kind of, that's kind of what happens if you, if you jump the fence and <laughs> see the Hollywood sign. <laughs> so, you get a free, kind of get a free helicopter ride. Like, don't like give people any ideas. <laughs> yeah, so don't get any ideas about jumping the fence and, and seeing uh, and trying to touch the Hollywood sign. 
Well, for, for just yeah, being a sign, just being a sign, it certainly has an interesting history and an interesting backstory. And Jeff, we thank you for coming on and sharing some of, of your insight on it. Uh, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Right now we're joined on the program. We mentioned that we were going to talk about gun control because C-21 has passed in the Senate. It is about to become law. Noah Swartz is our guest. And Noah is an assistant professor at the University of the Fraser Valley. He's also an author of uh, the book On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling, and the NRA. So the bill includes a number of things. It doesn't include everything that it did when it was first introduced over a year ago, but it does fortify a freeze on handgun sales. There are some increased penalties for firearm trafficking, those sorts of things. And I guess, Noah, if we could start maybe by giving your overview of of what this involves and, and, and maybe what you think the net result will be of this. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Uh, C-21 doesn't necessarily do anything in and of itself that's revolutionary. What it's really doing is pressing save on a lot of the changes that the Liberal government has brought in uh, through executive action. So in 2020, for example, after the very, very tragic Nova Scotia shooting, the Liberals bring in their ban uh, on assault-style weapons, but they did that through order in council. So kind of like an American uh, executive order. Same thing uh, after the uh, Uvalde shooting in the United States, uh, the Liberals bring in their freeze on the sale, uh, transfer, and inheritance of handguns. Once again, this is brought out about through regulation, so not through uh, the normal legislative process. Um, and for the Liberals, the, the danger there is that, you know, when there is a change of government, uh, it, if anything that's done through regulation or through executive order or through ordering council, it's very easy for the opposition to overturn in the same way. So C-21 was really their attempt to press save on these, uh, going through the full legislative process and make it much more difficult for a future government to overturn it. Uh, because if they wanted to, they'd have to go through, once again, the full year and a half, two-year legislative process. Uh, and it would give a lot of political opportunities to their opponents to be able to say, look, you know, they're they're uh, endangering public safety, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so this will, I guess, in effect, codify some of these uh, things that had already been in place. And so, as you say, so future governments uh, may not be able to easily change things or, or overturn them. Uh, but in this country, we have always had, at least my impression, has been fairly strict gun control, particularly when it comes to handguns. And I know one of the sort of the hot button issues seems to be this, you know, fortifying the freeze on handgun sales. But it, it, it seems like for decades now, I can remember conversations, overhearing conversations with friends uh, going back, I want to say, well, decades, I'm not sure if it was the 90s or the 80s, where at that time they were saying, look, I've I've had this handgun for years now, and now I'm being asked to uh, take these courses and register and do background checks and, and, and spend a lot of money. So it, it seemed like, did we not already have some pretty strict uh, control over handguns in this country? Definitely, yeah. No, since the 1990s, we've had very strict uh, laws on the books on gun control, very similar to what a lot of other uh, advanced countries in the, uh, the OECD have in place. And that's one of the major criticisms of the bill, is that it's targeting a group of people that aren't necessarily at the highest risk uh, of turning to criminality uh, with their firearms. Uh, as we know, the majority of firearms used in crime, especially handguns in Canada, are smuggled from the United States. This is something that we see uh, almost every major police department in every major city telling us again and again. Uh, so, yes, we, we have had very, very strict licensing laws since the 1990s. Handguns in Canada are registered. You have to take two classes and have a special class of license to be able to own a handgun versus just a regular long gun. There are strict storage requirements. Uh, transportation requires you to transport it with two locks, at least. So handguns were very, very tightly controlled in Canada uh, prior to this. And this is, of course, one of the major criticisms of the bill. You know, if we... Uh, as I said, if we look at that, where the handguns that are being used in crime are coming from, it's usually not people who have spent uh, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, and then gone through this entire rigorous uh, process um, to, to get access to these guns. Are we able to drill down and, and get some, some, some firm stats on uh, what percentage? Uh, obviously, if, if the majority of gun crimes are committed with guns that are smuggled from the United States, do we know uh, a percentage or is that difficult to track? It's very difficult. There's no reliable national data on this, um, which is a, a major issue that the government still hasn't really corrected after several years of, of touching on this issue. So we kind of have to go off of sporadic reports from police agencies or from certain provinces. So, for example, Ontario has their, their FATE program, 
uh, their firearms tracking program, and it's generally one of the best in the country that generally tracks a really good, reliable sample um, of, of firearms. And, and we know, for example, the Toronto uh, Chief of Toronto Police said, you, using that data, that only 3% of crime guns in Ontario were legally owned in Canada before showing up at a crime scene. So from, from what we've seen of sporadic reports uh, from different police agencies releasing their statistics is that it's a very small percentage, anywhere from maybe at the most 20% being domestically sourced. And that could be through theft. That could be through straw purchasing. So someone who gets a license just to sell guns uh, onto the black market and things like that. So uh, it, it is, you know, a very small percentage when we're talking about guns showing up at crime scenes that are coming from licensed gun owners. Uh, for the most part, they're, they're coming overseas. And so when, when I hear you talk in this manner and cite some of these statistics, and as you say, it's difficult to get, you know, those really precise numbers, but uh, certainly police forces across the country have been telling a story that may differ in some ways from uh, from some of the politicians that have been putting this legislation forward. Um, you can maybe see where licensed gun owners, law-abiding gun owners, would be skeptical about the reasons uh, a law like this would be brought in. Certainly, I know one of the major arguments uh, regarding this bill is, is certainly surrounding the motivations. Um, I, I think, you know, putting on my, my political scientist hat, um, I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, the government sees an electoral advantage in, in playing to this issue. Um, we've seen this sort of repeated again and again. So, for example, during the election uh, against Aaron O'Toole, when he was leader of the Conservative Party, uh, he was gaining a lot of momentum. And then the, uh, when the Liberals were able to talk, uh, turn the conversation into one about assault weapons, suddenly that momentum started to stall. Uh, so I think it's been a really effective wedge issue for the Liberal Party to use um, in terms of mobilizing their urban base, um, people in the suburbs uh, who are concerned about gun violence but may not know a lot about Canada's current gun laws. Um, most Canadians don't really know the laws uh, that are on the book. This has been borne out in, in survey research, for example. And so when you tell them, you know, look, we're going to stop the handguns, uh, it, it's a very powerful message. Um, but unfortunately, oh, sorry. No, no, I, I, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to say that the danger there is that we're already a, a, a very divided nation in many respects politically, not only on, on, on gun issues, but on other issues as well. But this could uh, maybe further uh, advance that division between urban dwellers and rural citizens who see guns as a means to uh, hunt, to target shoot, and those in the cities that are just inundated with story after story after story of violent gun crime. Certainly, yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, the government has some answering to do when it comes to some of the, the I believe, pers- uh, you know, purposely misleading statements that have been made about this legislation. I think it's, it's definitely going to worsen the urban-rural divide and then the east-west divide as well. Um, we see rates of gun ownership are, are generally higher in Western Canada, especially Saskatchewan, uh, Alberta, and parts of the interior of British Columbia. Um, and, and that's certainly, a, you know, a divide that's been getting a lot of attention in recent years, especially in Alberta, and, and one that's certainly going to be worsened by this legislation. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of Canadians are, are really worried about what's going on in the United States. And the government has, including with the timing of some of the legislation, so their handgun ban announced right after a mass shooting in Uvalde, They've kind of purposely conflated in the minds of Canadians what's happening in Canada and what's happening in the United States when they're two fundamentally uh, different situations. And I think that's just, you know, political strategy. We're talking Bill C-21. This is, if uh, you may be familiar with it, it certainly has gotten a lot of play over, not just over the last few days when it's been sort of passed by the Senate and and ready to become law, uh, but over the last year plus since it was first introduced, I think it was spring or early summer of 2022, uh, it uh, will become law. It codifies, uh, for example, the freeze on handgun sales. or some other things in here as well. Our guest to discuss it, Noah Swartz, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. And uh, there were, we just mentioned that it was introduced over a year ago, and, and there have been some amendments, uh, Noah, that didn't make it through to the end. Uh, and some of these were proposed bans on some, what I think some people or a lot of people would consider you know, really popular hunting rifles and shotguns and that sort of thing. Yeah, so this was the big uh, the big blow-up uh, last year around this time. Uh, so in the committee stage, uh, the Liberals introduced uh, two new amendments that would have expanded the category of what's considered uh, assault-style weapons. This is something that, uh, a can of worms that the Liberals have been, been contending with for the past couple of years. Um, they took a lot of criticism after the order in council 
um, for, you know, identifying certain weapons as assault-style weapons based off of just the reputation um, of the firearm. There were no technical categories that they could point to to say this is an assault-style weapon and, and this is not. Um, and uh, when they tried to sort of remedy this by, by coming up with a, a firm definition, technical definition of an assault-style weapon, um, the problem with that is that it expanded the category so widely that it captured a lot of guns that are commonly used for hunting in Canada, um, and especially by Indigenous communities, the SKS uh, being a, a primary example of this, a very popular one. So they've sort of been, you know, uh, there was a lot of blowback. You had uh, Carrie Price, for example, the Montreal Canadiens goalie, right. Um, coming out against this, and, and they rescinded those amendments. What they've done instead with C21 is said that, you know, they're going to prohibit the future per production or, or the future creation of guns that fall into this category. So semi-automatic, semi-automatic firearms um, that can accept removable magazines, essentially, uh, and they're going to go and retroactively look at the guns that are available on the market at a future date and, and evaluate whether they, those should be legal or not within their framework. I seem to recall um, a debate when these uh, recommendations, when we're talking about some of these, uh, you know, shotguns and, and, and hunting rifles were first being proposed and discussed and people were saying, well, they're going to, you know, they're, they're banning shotguns, for example, on this, uh, on this list. And, and at the, at the time I was like, oh, come on, don't be, you, you gotta be, they're not going to ban shotguns. You're just, you're just saying that. And then I went and looked at the list and there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, firearms on this list, if not thousands, but you go through it and every now and then you'd say, okay, well, there's a shotgun and there's a shotgun. Uh, but that seemed to have more to do with the, the ability to accept magazines that would take more than, what is it, four uh, shells in them? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's right. So four, uh, four, car- five, four or five cartridges. Um, yeah, which is, you know, it, it gets into dodgy territory because uh, even if, you know, the magazine that the gun came with, for example, was only designed to to hold five cartridges, there's nothing to say that another company can't develop an aftermarket magazine uh, that they can sell later that would uh, have more than five. So there's a, there's a lot of really technical uh, criteria here, and, and the government's kind of been trying to dance around this and, and frame this bill as, as not attacking hunters when they're, they either have to you know go through and, and ban the kind of guns that they want to ban, and, and that's going to impact a lot of hunters in Canada, and, and especially important image-wise, you know, Indigenous hunters, um, or they have to, to, to back off of this and, and just contend themselves with banning the, you know, more infamous guns like the AR-15. They seem to have gone for the first approach, but we'll have to see which guns they go back and retroactively ban. And you mentioned earlier Canada sort of in relation to other countries around the world when it comes to gun control. I think we're obviously, we live right next door to the United States, so I think a lot of gun control debate, we kind of maybe view it through that prism, Canada versus the United States. But I think the United States is probably a pretty extreme example. Where, now that C-21 has been passed, where do we stack up against other countries around the world? Are we are we more restrictive? Are we less restrictive? Or is everybody pretty much on the same page? Uh, C-21 is going to put us well out of step. Uh, we're going to become one of the more restrictive cases. Um, so looking at gun control internationally, um, Anglo-American democracies, uh, so uh, Great Britain, Australia, um, now uh, New Zealand uh, and Canada tend to be a lot stricter. The America is sort of the example because of their revolutionary history, uh, sort of the exception, exceptional example. Um, but, but Anglo-American democracies tend to be very, very tough. You know, Australia now has some of the strictest laws in the world, the UK as well with guns. And now Canada is sort of in step with those nations. But we're out of step with a lot of others, um, including many uh, you know, European countries that still allow uh, handgun ownership within certain parameters, right, with a strict licensing process, with restrictions on where you can use them and things like that. The future always very difficult to predict. Do you foresee a decrease in violent crime because of C-21? Uh, I don't know. The, throughout the entire legislative process, the government presented no data um, that in my mind supports their argument that this is going to have an impact on gun crime and especially with the rise of 3D printing. Um, you know, more and more 3D printed firearms are turning up at crime scenes or being intercepted by police. Um, I think it's going to be very easily easy for, for people who want to commit a crime with a firearm uh, to continue to get their hands on them, especially with economic incentives. Um, you know, the more you decrease supply in Canada, the more you increase the incentive for people to smuggle guns across the border because they can get a higher price for it. Uh, so I, I don't think that criminal gangs are going to have a problem sourcing their firearms, um, but it is going to hurt, you know, the com- community of sports shooters that, you know, work hard to, 
to be able to own these firearms and use them legally. And maybe one more, if I could, before uh, before I let you go, you, you, you follow this very closely, this issue. You've written about gun control extensively. Uh, in terms of the public debate, I sometimes feel there's an impression that there's just two camps. There are people who own firearms who are against gun control, those who don't are for gun control. But what is your experience? What, are, what is the attitude of the majority of, uh, of Canadians, do you think, when it comes to this issue? Not necessarily this specific bill and some of the restrictions here, but how do Canadians feel about gun control, even those who maybe own firearms? Yeah, I mean, generally, if you look at big national surveys, um, Canadians are very supportive of gun control. Um, I think that sometimes the wording of those surveys can can once again play uh, on that that public uh, ignorance of, of what the laws actually look like. Um, what I think is interesting, so in in my research, I've done survey research and and extensive interviews with uh, gun owners across Canada, and what comes up is really that that difference between gun owners in Canada and the United States. You know, gun owners in Canada see themselves as highly regulated citizens. They've worked hard to comply uh, with the the you know national licensing regime, and, and many of them are very supportive. Of laws like safe storage laws, uh, of laws like uh, licensing laws, and things like that. You know, they just want to be able to have their firearms to go to the range and and, and go out and, and hunt in the bush. So um, I, I think there are a lot of differences that aren't often captured in the public conversation between Canadian gun owners and American gun owners. You see a lot less of that kind of um, that sort of rah rah. This is my my undeniable right uh, talk in, in Canada and in the United States. Right. Well, these discussions certainly uh, uh, stir no small amount of emotion on, on either side of uh, the issue. So we certainly appreciate your, your insight from uh, the studies that you've done over the years, and we appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.